Well, good morning, Story Church. It's great to see you. It's great to be back with you again. If I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, my name is Brian Bloom. I'm uh, the lead pastor of Frontline Church, um, which, uh, and also the, the pastor of the Zero Collective Network, which is a family of churches that we get to be a part of together and get to run with together. And so I get to be here with you every once in a while, and um, uh, every single week I get to be with your pastor, and uh, we get to put services together and um, just be a part of this uh, together. So we're actually preaching through the same series right now. And I just got to tell you, it's so cool to just be here. Uh, I haven't been here in in several weeks, and just to hear about the relationship you guys are building with the community. Uh, The Christmas blessing thing and um, the hand-to-hand, it's just incredible to see the way you guys are reaching out as a church and just saying, how, how can we serve you as the church in this community? It's just a really cool thing to be a part of and a really cool thing to see. And so um, Kyle and Josh and um, Zach, who I know preached a couple weeks ago and was up here playing drums, um, Sarah and the children's ministry and Brittany, can we just say thank you to our leaders, uh, to our lead team for just really they've been leading us. And um, yeah, we are headed into the Christmas season and the the services we're talking about, I just really believe God is going to move powerfully um, here at the story, here in Comstock Park, and we're going to see people who, who don't know Christ or who haven't been in church in a long time uh, take a step in their, in their walk. And so um, we're in this, this series that we're preaching our way through at all four churches in the Zero Collective, and we're talking about Christmas scandals. We're talking about some of the more scandalous uh, parts of Jesus' story and what he was here to do and why he came to this earth. Um, so a little bit uh, about uh, my family. Um, my wife and I have been married for 23 years. Her name is Carrie. We have four boys, most, uh, mostly teenagers. And one of the things my wife loves to do, if you guys want to go ahead to that picture, my wife loves to, to uh, make beautiful gardens. So this is actually just one part of one garden at our house. Um, she, uh, she loves to dig in the, in the ground. She loves to plant and she loves to create uh, like an experience of beauty. So when people walk by our house, when people see our house, she wants them to have like an experience of beauty. She thinks about, if you want to go ahead to that next one, there's uh, just like a little bit closer. She thinks about how our house looks and how um, she loves to create that beauty, but then she also wants other people to experience it when they come to our house. Um, not only that, but this time of year, we do this crazy thing where we decorate our house with Christmas lights. Uh, this is not my house, by the way. That is not. I just found that picture online. How many of you have Christmas lights on your house somewhere right now? Yeah, isn't this crazy? I mean, we take trees from outside, we put them in our house, and then we take our lights from inside our house and put them outside the house. And we do this to create this, you know, this image for people to see. It's not really for us. It's on the outside of our house. It's for people who are walking by or driving by. Uh, we have this like Christmas tradition in my family every single year. As I look forward to it every year. As soon as Thanksgiving is over, my wife comes to me and very gently, Carrie says, honey, don't you, don't you think it's time to go put up the Christmas lights? And I say, no, nah, I don't really think so. I don't think now's the time. And so the next day she comes and she says, okay, do, do you think now? Do you think now's the time to put up the Christmas lights? And I say, no, I'm still really not feeling it. And she says, go put up the Christmas lights right now. And then I get out the ladder and I put up the Christmas lights. It's like a a Christmas tradition. I look forward to it every year at our house. This is what we do. Every year the same thing happens. And I bet you do things too in your world, in your house. I bet you are aware of how your house or your family looks to outsiders. You do things to create an image. Uh, has anybody ever had like the neighbor that didn't take care of their lawn or, or their house? 
How many of you are the neighbor who doesn't take care of your lawn? Awesome. Be proud of it. Be proud of it. That's great. <laughs> yeah. It, well, the reason I tell you that is because in Jesus' day, in, in ancient times, uh, a genealogy was actually one of those kind of things. A genealogy was the way that you crafted and cultivated an image, and it was a way that you made your family look good to outsiders. So in ancient Israel, every Jewish person knew their genealogy. They knew how to trace their family lineage back. And so here's what you would do. You would carefully cultivate your family genealogy, and you would include people in it. In in the great stories of Israel of old, you would include people in your genealogy that made your family look good, and you would purposely leave out certain characters in your family lineage that made your family look crazy. That's what you did. And so when we open Matthew's gospel, and he begins to tell the greatest story ever told, he begins to tell the story of Jesus, he begins with a genealogy, a, list of, a long list of names. And Pastor Kyle did an awesome job last week of looking at that list of names and talking through the genealogy and some of the things we see. But what's interesting about it is that Matthew does something that you just didn't do at this time. He includes people intentionally in Jesus' genealogy that you just wouldn't include. Instead of cultivating and saying, hey, here's all the great people that are in Jesus' genealogy, he also includes some people that you would have wanted to leave out. In fact, he includes five women, which at this time in history, uh, you just wouldn't include women typically in a genealogy. But he includes them. And not only uh, are they uh, stories of women, but if you look at the women and the men that he includes in Jesus' genealogy, they're some of the most scandalous people that call back to mind some of the most scandalous stories that happened in the scriptures of Israel. And Matthew is doing this on purpose. He wants to make a statement about who Jesus is and why he's come. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at two of these characters who appear in Jesus' genealogy, two of these women and the two men that they are connected to, uh, through Jesus' genealogy and talk about a little bit of the story of scandal that that would have raised. Matthew wants us to think about these stories because it has to do with who Jesus is and what he came to do. So these are the two people we're going to look at this morning, two powerless people in Jesus' genealogy. The first one is Tamar, and you can find her story in Genesis 38, 1 through 30, and the second one is Bathsheba, and you can find her story in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. Now, here's what I'm going to do. You can go read both of these uh, stories on your own. I'm going to summarize their stories a little bit. Now, Tamar, most people, uh, even if you grew up in church, you may not have ever heard the story of Tamar from Genesis chapter 38. The reason for this is because if you just go and open the Bible and read Genesis 38, it's sort of like a rated R story. It really is. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to attempt... Um, some of you are very innocent in this room and, so, and, and watching online too, I'm assuming. And so I'm going to attempt to sort of summarize in sort of a PG-13 version of the story of Tamar in Genesis 38. So here, here's the story. A young woman named Tamar marries a man named Ur. Now why that's significant is because Ur is one of several sons of Judah. Judah is one of the patriarchs of Israel. He's, he's a descendant of Abraham through which the promise was going to come. And so Tamar marries Judah's son, Ur. Now, Ur was a terrible husband. He treats Tamar awful, and then eventually he dies. 
Now, according to Jewish law at that time, uh, if a brother died, uh, basically the next brother in line, it was up to him by law to marry the widow of his brother and have children with her. The reason for this is because if you were a woman in this time and you had gotten married and your husband died and you had become a widow, uh, you had no one to, to provide for you. You had no one to uh, care for you. You had no place in someone's family. And the chances of you being able to get remarried outside of the family that you were married into was very slim. You were kind of unwanted in that day. And so that's why the law provided for women in this way that, so that when Ur dies, according to law, his next brother in line, his name is Onan, Onan has to marry Tamar and have children with her. So that's what, that's what happens. Onan marries Tamar, but Onan is also a terrible husband. He doesn't love Tamar. He doesn't take care of her. And because he's greedy, he basically wants to set himself up for a better inheritance, a bigger inheritance where he doesn't have to share with anybody else and so it's very graphic, but he basically decides not to have children with Tamar, and he refuses to conceive a child with her. And so as if that wasn't painful enough, Onan dies. So now you have Ur dies, the next brother in line, Onan dies. And so there's another brother who's, who's much younger than Tamar, who is next in line to marry Tamar and have children with her. But Judah, her father-in-law, the patriarch Judah, one of the heroes of the Old Testament steps in and says, absolutely not. I'm not going to let you marry the next son in line. I've already lost two sons. He, he decides there must be something cursed with this uh, young woman. Something's wrong with her. And so he refuses to uh, you know, make the sacrifice of his third son so that she could be brought into the family. And so Tamar is rejected. She's cast out. She is on her own. She has no way to provide for herself. She, she doesn't belong to any family. And so Tamar does what a woman would do in that day if you found yourself in that situation. No way to provide, no way to care for yourself. You're, you, the chances of you being able to be remarried is next to nothing. What she does is she dresses up like a prostitute and she positions herself on one of the main thoroughfares, one of the main roads. And what you need to understand about this day is that prostitutes in this day uh, if a woman was to dress like a prostitute, she would cover her face. So prostitutes, you, could not, you would not recognize the person. You, you couldn't see their face. That's significant to the story because what happens is Tamar is now a prostitute. She's by the side of the road. Her face is covered, and along comes Judah, her father-in-law. And when Judah sees her, he approaches her. He propositions her. And as a result of their sexual liaison, Tamar becomes pregnant. So now here she is, she's pregnant. She knows she's pregnant with her father-in-law's child, but he doesn't know it because she had a face covering on. She, she, you know, he has no idea. So what she does is she decides to confront him. So she goes to confront Judah, her father-in-law, and when he finds out she's pregnant in this crazy hypocritical twist, he actually wants to have her condemned to death. He wants to have her killed because she wasn't remaining sexually pure which is just, right? But what she does, and again, it's very graphic. I won't go into detail, but what she does is she proves to Judah that the child she was pregnant with is his child. He actually had left an item um, with her when, when he had left. And so she had this item and she was able to prove that, hey, this is actually your child that I'm pregnant with. And so the two of them uh, appear in this family story. Judah 
marries Tamar, and one of their sons, his name is Perez, he eventually becomes the ancestor of King David, who then becomes uh, the ancestor of King Jesus. And Matthew puts both of their names in the genealogy, Judah and Tamar. He mentions her. He wants us to call to mind. He wants us to remember this story. And what you see in this story is this, you know, this juxtaposition between a powerful person and a powerless person. Judah, this hypocritical leader, but, but who also is one of the heroes of the patriarchs of uh, Israel's story, and Tamar, uh, who basically was used by him and then, you know, has to find her way back into the family. So that's Tamar. Now you see why you've probably never heard the story of Tamar, even at church, right? That kind of story doesn't appear on a flannel graph in kids' Sunday school very well. <laughs> uh, but if you, even if you didn't grow up in church, even if you weren't around the Bible much, you probably, everybody's heard the story of Bathsheba. The story of Bathsheba has sort of, uh, you know, sunk into our popular culture. Everybody pretty much knows what happened when King David, from the roof of his palace, first looked at a naked Bathsheba who was doing a ceremonial uh, bathing and cleansing. There was nothing you know, improper about what she was doing. It was actually required by the law to do it. And so what happens is King David, in this moment, um, he sends for her, and she is required to come to him, and the two of them have sex, and then she finds out that she's pregnant. Now, uh, the magnitude of David's sin really cannot be overstated. Not only did he exploit Bathsheba and take advantage of her, but then when he finds out she's pregnant, he actually has her husband Uriah killed. He, he was one of David's uh, greatest mighty men. He was one of his fighting soldiers. He sends him to the front line on purpose and to make sure that he gets killed in battle so that David can then uh, take Bathsheba as his wife and sort of cover up his sin. Now, most everybody's heard that story. Most everybody knows that story. Here's what we usually do with that story. Almost every single time uh, you've ever heard a sermon on that story, every time you've, you've read a commentary or, or whatever, every time we talk about this story, here's what we do with it. We say, yeah, David sinned. David did a horrible thing, but he committed adultery and murder, but David repented of his sin. He was a man after God's own heart. And so God forgave him and God still used him as a great leader in Israel's history. That's what we usually do with that. And that's absolutely true. That is 100% true. That is accurate and true to the story. But if we could for a moment, let's just think about this through the lens of Bathsheba's experience. For Bathsheba, what's interesting is if you go and read 2 Samuel 11 and 12 and read the story, the Bible actually never condemns Bathsheba for her role in what happens. It doesn't judge her. It, it absolutely condemns and judges David for his sin when Nathan the prophet comes to him and he has this moment of repentance, but it never talks about Bathsheba. And, and a lot of the reason for that is because as a woman at this time, if the king summoned you, you had very little uh, option but to respond and to acquiesce to whatever he was asking for. And so she found herself in this position with very little options, very little choices. And if you think about what happened to Bathsheba, her life was one of difficulty and sorrow. If, what makes it even more complicated is when you realize that um, her grandfather, Ahithophel was his name. That's a, that's a great baby name if any of you are looking for one. Um, he is the uh, advisor. He's one of the close advisors of King David. So her grandfather even serves King David. And so when she gets this request, she has to come. And what happens is she's probably, she becomes one of the most unpopular people probably in all of ancient Israel. 
her, she loses a son. He dies in the process because of what happens between her and David. And then uh, she has to get married to an unfaithful man, an unfaithful husband, and live out the rest of her days with him. Now, who knows what God did in their lives? Who knows what healing God brought into their story and into that? But what's amazing to me is that she appears in Matthew's genealogy of Jesus. She's named by God in Jesus' genealogy. Matthew puts her in there on purpose. In fact, he doesn't even call her Bathsheba. You know what he calls her in the genealogy? Does anybody know? He calls her Uriah's wife. That's how she's referred to in the genealogy. What Matthew is doing is he's trying to say, hey, remember this story? She's, she's Uriah's wife. Remember that? Remember this story? He wants us to call to memory and remember this scandalous, horrible story in ancient Israel's history. And he wants to connect that to the story of Jesus. So that's Tamar and Bathsheba. So the question I want to ask is, why? <laughs> right? Why are Tamar and Bathsheba here in God's story with Judah and David? Matthew could have just said Judah, and then he could have just said David. That's all he needed to say. That's the genealogy. That's what people did in this day. Why does he include Tamar and Bathsheba here? It's scandalous that he does this. You have to understand, at this time, this would have been almost similar to like putting the name of a rapist and his victim on the birth certificate. That's the level of like disgust this would have caused or scandal it would have caused uh, you know, to come to people's minds. Why in the world does Matthew want us to connect that and to think about that? The reason is because the stories of scandal that it caused to mind actually point to Jesus. These characters point to Jesus and to who he is. What we're supposed to do when we look at the stories of the Old Testament, oftentimes here's what we do. We look at these great characters in the Old Testament, people like David, people like Judah, and we say, man, if I just work harder, if I just try harder, if I just try to be better, maybe I can be a better person. Maybe God will bless me. And we just work harder and we, we push ourselves more. And what Matthew's trying to show us is even these great heroes that we measure ourselves against fell short. They didn't live up to what God's design was. And they needed a savior. And so their story actually ends up pointing to the person of Jesus. How? Think about it. Judah refuses to sacrifice his son in order to bring Tamar into his family. Jesus was God's son who was sent to this world and sacrificed his life on our behalf so that we could be brought into God's family. Judah uses his power and his position to cut Tamar out and then to, to he uses his power to, to basically satisfy his own urges and his own needs with her. Jesus, when he comes, Philippians 2 says he sets aside his power, he sets aside his privilege, and he comes to earth as a human being in the incarnation, and he comes to serve and to offer his life sacrificially so that we can be brought in, so that our needs can be met. In other words, Jesus was the true and better Judah, as some scholars put it. Jesus came as the true and better Judah, the one who came to do what Judah couldn't do and that what we can't do on our behalf, he came to do it. King David. David took someone's life in order to cover up his own sin. Jesus, when he came, he offered his life sacrificially. He shed his blood on our behalf so that we could have our sin forgiven 
as an offering for our sin. King David, uh, he took a bride. He stole a woman, a woman, basically. He stole a bride, which was not his to take. Jesus comes and sheds his blood, and by his death and by his resurrection, Jesus purchases for himself a bride, the church, a pure and spotless lamb. That's us. That's the church for himself. Jesus is the true and better David. Jesus is the one who comes to fulfill everything that we see in the Old Testament. So when you see these stories, what we're supposed to do is we're not supposed to look at these heroes of the Old Testament and go, man, if I just, if I just work harder, maybe I can be like them. We're supposed to look and we're supposed to see they were frail. They were weak. They couldn't save themselves. And neither could we. And Jesus comes as a savior. He's called a savior because we needed to be saved. He's the true and better Judah. He's the true and better David. Now, here's the problem. Here's the problem with this. Oftentimes, what we do when we look at the genealogy or when we look at these stories from the Old Testament, what we do is we kind of identify with the victims, like, like the truth of it is, when we like think about these stories, we have no problem with Tamar and Bathsheba being in the genealogy of Jesus. We kind of cheer Matthew on, like, way to go, man. Way to go putting them in there. We, what we do is we identify with them. We, we look at them, we go, man, I, we know what it feels like to be uh, victimized. But what we don't do is we don't identify also with the violators. We don't look at Judah and David and kind of see ourselves in them as well. We, we only kind of identify... Uh, the victims. And so the main idea I want us to understand this morning is that in Jesus' new family, both the victim and the violator find grace. What's so powerful about putting their names together and, and recalling the stories of brokenness in Jesus' genealogy is Matthew is trying to say, look, they're both here, the victim and the violator, and they all find grace together in Jesus. Now, we don't have a hard time with, Tim, with accepting Tamar and Bathsheba, but Judah and David? See, Here's why that matters. It's because we live in a culture right now, the message every single day for every single one of us here in this room or every single one of us watching online, the message our culture tells us every single day is that the biggest problem, the biggest thing that is wrong with you is external to you. That you are a victim of someone else's sin. You're a victim of the way that someone else has sinned against you and hurt you. That's the message we hear everywhere in our culture today. But here's here's the good news with that. If you just listen to that voice inside of you, you have everything you need internally inside of you to overcome it. So you do you. Live your truth. Just, Just be your most authentic self, right? That's the message we hear. And if you do that, you will have the power to overcome whatever externally has victimized you and come against you. That's the gospel our culture tries to tell us. They say that's the path to salvation. Biggest thing that's wrong with you is external to you. You're a victim of someone else's sin. So just listen to that voice inside of you. Be your most true, authentic self, and then you'll have the power if you just live your truth to overcome whatever's happened to you. My friends, that is not the true gospel. That's not the path to salvation. What the gospel tells us is that Jesus was a victim of our sin, It was our sin that put Jesus on the cross. And it was his intense love for us that held him there until it was finished, paid for in full on our behalf. And therefore, 
The path to salvation, what the gospel tells us, is actually, yeah, yes, there are real victims in our world. Absolutely, there are, absolute, absolutely, there are real victims of our world uh, like Bathsheba, like Tamar, but the biggest thing that's wrong with you, the biggest problem that you have is actually internal. It's not external to you, it's internal. You have a sin nature. You have a sin nature just like every single person in that genealogy, even just like Judah and David, that same sin nature that lived in them lives inside of you. And therefore, what the gospel says is you actually, the only path to salvation is you need help from the outside. You need something from the outside to come into your life and give you the power to overcome because you don't have it within yourself. And that power from the outside is Christ. When we accept Christ as our Savior and when the Holy Spirit comes in, the Holy Spirit becomes the power to overcome and to live our lives. That's the gospel message. And that, that's what Matthew is inviting us into. So if we could for a minute, maybe we could kind of turn this toward ourselves and, and kind of say, okay, so, so where am I in this? Um, what role do I play in God's story? Am I a victim or am I a violator? Which one am I? What role do I play in God's story, victim or violator? Here's the answer, both, both. Every single one of us is both. Every one of us has been a victim of someone else's sin. Some of you, maybe watching online, maybe in this room, there is very real trauma. There is very real uh, wounds that years and years later, you are still unpacking it. It's still affecting you on a daily basis because you truly have been a victim of someone else's sin. And here's the good news of the gospel for the victim of someone else's sin is that there is power in admitting that you are powerless and that you actually need help from the outside. There is power in that. And God answers those prayers when we, when we invite Jesus into those places of our lives and we don't try to do it in our own power, to overcome in our own power. But the truth of the matter is every single one of us also is a violator. Every single one of us also has a sin nature and we've sinned against God and against others. And so the good news for us, uh, you, you know, and that's, that picture is that there's freedom when we repent of our sin and when we actually accept the pardon that's been made on our behalf through the person of Jesus. That's good news. But the gospel requires us to see ourselves truly as both. We're both victim and we're, and we're violator and we need Jesus to come in from the outside and the power of the Holy Spirit to come in and give us what we need. And when we do that, you are able to overcome whatever has happened in your life, whatever is coming against you now, whatever the future holds that you can't know. When you do that, when you allow Jesus to be your Savior, when you allow the Holy Spirit to come in and be the strength from the outside, you can overcome. That's what the gospel message is. That's what Jesus came to show. That's why Matthew includes these names in here is because Jesus came. He was the true and better Judah. He was the true and better David. He was the true and better one that, that anything that the priests, that the sacrificial system, that the law, that the temple could not accomplish, he accomplished it on our behalf. So do you need to hear that message this Christmas? Is, is there any way maybe that you need to say, yeah, I need that. Um, this message, this gospel message is so, uh, it's so meaningful to me because I remember very much the way that it came into my life, the way that power from the outside came into my life and came into my family happened in a, in a pretty dramatic way. And it happened honestly through a simple invitation. 
you know, Kyle's holding up these cards and talking about these cards. I mean, we don't think of it, but this, this is actually a really holy thing, making an invitation f- to the gospel for people to actually come to church or to experience the gospel. When I was 12 years old, uh, our family moved from Indianapolis, Indiana, where I, where I had grown up, and we moved to this podunk little town in northern Indiana called Marion, Marion, Indiana. Anybody ever heard of Marion, Indiana? Okay, a bunch of you? Wow. Okay, I guess we're in Wesleyan world. Maybe that's why. I don't know. <laughs> that's why. It seems like nobody knows uh, Marion, Indiana outside of our, our uh, denominational world. But we moved to this town, and uh, there was no, there had been no, like, you know, relationship with God, previous church background. And what was underneath the move was actually my parents' marriage was falling apart. And at 12 years old, I knew it. I could sense it. It was like this feeling of dread. I remember thinking I knew my parents were not doing well and things were not headed in a good direction. And what had happened was my, my dad had a job. He, was, uh, he worked at the Independent uh, or the Indiana Federal Credit Union League. He was kind of a, a big shot and he traveled all the time for his job, was never home. And so my mom had gotten to a place where she was tired of raising kids by herself. She was done with their marriage. And so it was kind of like a last-ditch effort. My dad quit his job in Indianapolis. He took a job at Marion Independent Credit Union in uh, Marion, Indiana, and moved our family there in kind of an effort, like maybe I can, we can start afresh. Maybe we can save the marriage. And it's a job where he's home every night. I'm going to be home every night. I'm going to be home every weekend. And it was, it was an attempt to kind of make a major shift. And what happened was, uh, first day of school, my mom drops me off at middle school for, in this brand new school, first day of school, and things are hard. It's just difficult. And she turns around, and she's walking down the hallway. She's almost to the doors to walk out into the parking lot, and she just breaks down crying. This life is hard. They're, they're, we're new in town. We don't know anybody. We're, you know, things are not good at home. We're trying to sort of make this kind of last-ditch move to repair things. Who knows if it's going to work? And what happens is right there, she breaks down crying, and just as she's trying to walk out the doors to go in the parking lot, my middle school principal intersects her. His name is Mr. Austin. I still call him Mr. Austin to this day. <laughs> and he intersects my mom, and he just begins to talk to her. And he just begins to listen to her. She's like crying and everything. And at some point in that conversation, he says to her, hey, you know what? You should come to church with me and my family. You're new here in town. He goes, like, it's a, gr- a great way to meet new people so you're not just so alone is to actually come to church. What, what do you think? That one invitation at that moment at the door where he intersected my mom changed the trajectory of my life. It wasn't the very next week. It wasn't even the week after that. But eventually, our family did go to church with Mr. Austin and his wife, Lois. I remember pulling into the parking lot, our family, and we were like, what is this? Like, we get out of the car in the parking lot. People are all walking in, and we feel awkward. We feel weird. We walk up, and Mr. Austin is there at the door, and they they are there to greet us. And we actually go into church, and we sat that Sunday and the following Sunday and the following Sunday. We sat with Mr. Austin and his wife, our family, every week in church. And we were so messed up. It always makes me emotional when I remember back stuff. He, he had no idea. His wife had no idea just how broken we were. But something began to happen. We began to hear this message that there is hope for, for people who are broken, that there is a help from the outside, that you don't have everything within you to, to fix it or to solve it. No matter how hard you're trying, you move your family, you do all these things to try to solve it, you can't. You need help from the outside. And within one year, 
It was different kind of times and different experiences for each of us. But within one year, we had all accepted Christ. We'd all gotten baptized in that church. And the trajectory of my life, the trajectory of my parents' marriage and of our family had changed. Praise God. Um, I tell you that because the reason these broken stories in the are in the genealogy of Jesus is because Jesus came for them. He came for people like my, my family was back then. He came for people like friends and relatives and people. You, you, you know somebody broken? You know somebody who's in a powerless situation? You know somebody who's just, they're holding it together barely and you can see through it. If God's put you in a place where you've intersected someone's life in a moment and you've seen the brokenness, you've seen the way they're hurting, he's sending you to be an invitation for the greatest message that's ever been told. So would you do this? Would you bow your heads with me? We're putting a lot of energy into this um, because it matters. Uh, you know some victims. You know some violators. We're talking about these cards. We're talking about who we'll invite as Christmas uh, comes, as, as this service on, on the, at 6 p.m. on the 24th comes. So the question I want to ask you is, who is God intersecting your life with right now? Just begin to lift them up. Just begin to pray for them even right now. And if, it is, if it's you, maybe what you're saying is, you know, I've been trying to do this on my own strength. Maybe today is the day. Even if you're watching online, even if you're not here with us physically, maybe you say, today is the day I stop running, I stop fighting, I stop trying to do it in my own power, live my own truth, listen to my, the own voice in my own head to overcome. And I just surrender and I say, I need help from the outside. I need a savior. So Jesus, we just come to you right now. We come to you. You are the true and better Judah. You are the true and better David. You are the true and better thing that better than anything else this world offers or tells us is the path to salvation. We ask that you would truly enter into our lives, that you would make yourself at home in our worlds, God, that you would save us. God, right now, we lift up to you the name of whoever it is that, that you're putting on our heart. Would you open a door, God, uh, for an invite? Open a door for a conversation. Open a door, if nothing else, just to serve them and just show them an act of love. And, um, God, who knows that it may be the moment that changes the trajectory of their life. Would you use us, God? Would you have your way? We just give you glory and we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for who you are. And that this time of year at Christmas time, it's not lost on us. That you came for the broken. You came for people like us. And so we love you for that, Jesus. And you get all the glory eternally forever and ever. And everybody said, amen.